Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, this is Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. And on this month's show, in the aftermath of a contentious presidential election season, what's the future of elections and voting in Baltimore and beyond? Later in the show, we'll hear about fights to expand ballot access here in Maryland, learn about the role polling plays in elections, and hear about how voters across the country cast ballots during an unprecedented health crisis. But now I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Lester Spence. He's a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University and author of numerous books, including the latest, and please check it out if you have not read it yet, Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. Dr. Spence, it's great to have you on, and thank you so much. My man, it's great to be here. It's great to have you with us, man. And so, so let me let me first start off and ask you, as a, as a political scientist who specializes in black politics, what were your big takeaways from the presidential election that we just saw? So uh, there are a few different takeaways. So one is that black people represent the base of the Democratic Party. If it wasn't clear before, it should be even clearer now. Black women and black men were the two largest support base for uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, Black women voted for the Biden-Harris ticket at a rate of about nine out of 10 black uh, women voters. Black male voters, it was about eight out of 10. Uh, The second thing is that, uh, particularly in places like Philadelphia and Detroit, and a number of uh, uh, cities with large black populations, what we see is a turnout machine that really did a powerful job at um, mobilizing black voters and making them the and, and causing them to be the difference makers. Um, at the same time, though, there are particularly in the wake of the election after everything is said and done, it's going to be an open question about the degree to which the Democratic Party actually deals with the progressive issues that I think would be uh, most important at giving black women and black men the opportunity to live healthy lives, particularly in this pandemic. So those are just a couple of the uh, most important takeaways for me. But see, but and, and, and I want to and I want to get into that. You know, you're absolutely right. It's Joe Biden doesn't only owe the general election victory to black voters. He owes a primary victory to black voters. It was really black voters who helped him get out of South Carolina, which gave him the momentum to be able to you know, move on in the way of winning the primary. But when we're looking at the dynamics that exist right now, we also saw that Four percent of African-American women voted for Donald Trump in 2016. That number moved to eight percent in 2020. African-American men, it went from 10 percent to 18 percent in, in, in 2020. And so while it's still an overwhelming number, there's a lot of nuance and a lot to break apart when we understand, A, why we had actually ironically an increase in African-Americans voting for Donald Trump, even when we had an African-American woman on the ticket, and also the fact that that African-American, you know, when you're looking at the proportion of African-Americans that voted for for Joe Biden, uh, the demand for what type of policies that we put in place are going to be incredibly important and need to be heard and understood. How should the Biden-Harris administration be thinking about that when actually going from going from being candidates 
for the, the space to now actually taking over the seats? So I think that's a great question, but I want actually want to push back and ask it, uh, ask it a different way. If you look at the differences between 2016 and 2020 in black voters, whether you're talking about black women or black men or black people, that difference is not statistically significant. So mm -hmm. we can't actually say, we cannot say with fact that black people's uh, vote uh, for the Republican Party double. We can't say that for black men. We can't say that for black women. We can't say that for black people, right? Uh, so, but what we can say is that there is a conservative element and a progressive element within black communities that, 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 that we have to kind of wrestle with. So we talk about that South Carolina black vote that basically made Biden viable. So that's uh, Representative Clyburn, who's the most important political official in South Carolina, mm. who gets the mo more money than I think any other representative from the pharmaceutical industry. So if you think about black, you know, black folk need basically universal health care more than any other population. But because somebody like Clyburn uh, speaks for or tries to speak for uh, a certain tendency within black communities, you actually would not believe that. Right. So when Clyburn gets in front of the press and talks about how basically uh, the socialist move is a bad move, what he's articulating is a is a politics that's very, very different than the people than the black people organizing in the streets to defund the police. So the question is it is partially about what how do Biden and Harris respond to this? But from my standpoint, it's about how do black organizers actually respond to this in order to kind of articulate a set of policies that actually go against the policies of a more conservative representative like Clyburn and towards the more progressive policies of somebody like Rashida Tlaib, who actually represents my uh, parents in metropolitan Detroit. That's a really important point, especially considering the fact that this isn't just about what happens at the end of January when a Biden-Harris administration is sworn in. This also goes back to what's got to happen in the beginning of January when you're looking at the fact that there are still two races in Georgia that really are going to help to determine uh, what the Senate is going to look like and then therefore what type of support a Biden-Harris administration is going to have in terms of you know pushing together policies. Now, again, politics in Georgia and Georgia politics are still very different and very nuanced. But how do you see that narrative playing out? How do you see those races and these special elections playing out in terms of what it really means in terms of what the Biden-Harris administration are going to try to get done uh, once they actually take assume the seats? So the thing is, is that with the Republican Party, we basically have a party that's the closest thing to the Jim Crow Democratic Party that we've ever seen. And I don't just mean that in relation to their racial politics. I also mean that in the fact that they don't actually have uh, most of the values that we think of as Democratic values they don't possess. So actually taking control of the Senate is going to be essential for the Biden-Harris ticket to get any policies to get almost anything done with, for example, uh, a, a Democratic Senate, uh, we can actually see something far closer to the New Deal. We can see a robust suite of policies designed to deal with the pandemic, its causes and its consequences. But without uh, a Democratic Senate, all of that stuff comes into, uh, comes into question. So what's going on in, um, in Georgia is essential. So first I have to give a shout out to Stacey Abrams because without Stacey Abrams, Georgia wouldn't even be this close. I think she's basically done the really, really, really hard work to 
pretty much flip Georgia and make Georgia competitive going forward. But that's going to depend on not just what happens with this election, but again, what type of policies the Biden and the Harris uh, campaign puts forth, uh, even in the form of executive orders after the election, right? Because if we don't have that, what we'll have is a condition in which all those new voters that the Democratic Party was able to mobilize, much of them black, will basically sit out in two years and then they'll sit out in four years. And although one could argue that there's an anti-democratic component to executive orders in as much as it basically skirts the legislative branch, if you're talking about a Republican Party that believes that every vote that goes against them is illegitimate, like executive orders is is, is what we're going to have, if that's going to be the play, if we can't get the Senate and all we have executive orders, then what black organizers need to do and organizers in general is we need to think about what type of pressure we need to put on the Biden-Harris ticket in order to make sure that those executive orders reflect our interests and our needs. And you you have such a unique perspective because, I mean, you understand the, the, the national movements and national momentum as much as anybody, but also you are very much a Baltimorean and you understand what's going on here, too. And, you know, in Baltimore, we just had our own dramatic election season where we are now have a new mayor and a new city council president, a new comptroller, several new city council members. How do you think about the agenda that is going to take place and needs to take place in a city like Baltimore, particularly during this pandemic era. And then also you've spoken about the the role of grassroots organizing in all of that. How do you see grassroots organizers and the role that grassroots organizers are playing in terms of helping to shape an agenda? So I remember talking to Mary Pat Clark several years ago and just, it was a, it was a, we were happened to be in the restaurant at the same time. I was, I just asked her, it's like, how many people, how many city council seats need to be flipped in order to transform the city council into a more progressive one. And she gave me a number, I think it was like five or six. Since that point in time, we've actually seen those five or six seats have all flipped. And that is a direct result of organizing and then then also kind of a a result of the ideas that organizing generated that that made us question the degree to which the, the city council and the mayor really actually has been giving public funds to a range of, of institutional investors. Um, and then on the other hand, has made us all a question that degree to which the police take up a seemingly larger and larger component of the budget. So what we see in the Baltimore elections is a continuation of the effect of that organizing. And then what we also see is the effect of that organizing on the relationship between the city council and the mayor. Because if you look at the changes in the structure, a number of, of policies were implemented that reduced the power of the mayor. And if you think about the strong mayor system that Baltimore has, we know that strong mayor systems tend to end up having a, a, a problematic effect on the degree to which that regular citizens can kind of hold the, uh, the mayor and their government accountable. So I think we're on, we're, we're, we're not progressing at the right, at the speed that, at which I would like, but we're going in the right direction. It's, it's going to be incumbent, though, for organizers, for local organizers to push the government to do even more at the city and the state level, particularly when we're talking about dealing with something like the police. 
And it's it's interesting because uh, you're absolutely right. There some of the biggest takeaways from this election cycle were not just who is sitting in the seats, but you're right. It's the structure around it. Um, you know, some of the the pullback and the restrictions that we had both on the city and the state level. Uh, how the legislator, how the legislature interacts with the governor, how the council interacts with the mayor, and it is also things like the introduction of a of a, of a city administrator. Uh, role. I mean, these are all structural things that are going to have as much impact on people's everyday lives as is who is sitting in the seats in many ways. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So if, as I think about this, and I apologize for the uh, for the kind of the sports analogy, it's like what we have to do at the local, the state, and the uh, and the federal level is stop treating politics like a spectator sport. And to be to be fair, it's not like Baltimore folk do that, and it's not like Black folks specifically do that, but we have to be we have to dive even deeper into politics like taking politics seriously not just not just the folk we're putting in office although it's a good look to have somebody like Brandon Scott in as opposed to somebody like a Jack Young or even a Stephanie uh, Rawlings Blake but we have to think really really carefully about the structures and about the public policies that we need to hold them accountable and that we need to make sure that the actions they undertake reflect our interests and our needs. I could, could not agree more. And so, so let, let me let me ask you let me ask you one final question. Uh, and that is, when you look at a city like Baltimore, and it's a very it's a heavily Democratic city, uh, much of the action that takes place in the city is going to take place on the primary side. Uh, but there were a number of independents and Green Party, Republicans, uh, I think about even on the federal side, a very well-funded uh, Rep Republican congressional candidate uh, who they were able to make their mark on this election. Where do you think that non-Democrats fit into the future of electoral politics in Baltimore? So I'm going to take somebody like a Franca Mueller Paz. Uh, shout out. She came really, really close to taking out Stokes. When I see her, I see something similar to what I saw in what we saw in St. Louis uh, this last election. So Cori Bush was a Ferguson organizer. Uh, she ran against Lacey Clay, uh, I believe two years ago, a little bit after Ferguson and lost. But she ended up running two years later and she ended up winning. Right now, what, what's going on, what we see with that example is, again, the power of organizing we also see, though, the power of kind of name recognition. So I think what's going to what's going to have to happen, or what I see is a poten potential with somebody like a Frank or Frank Mueller Paz, is somebody who kind of runs the first time, maybe, and then maybe isn't successful, but still organizes in the interim, and doing that will either cause the uh, the uh, incumbents to do uh, a better job of representing their citizens, representing their constituents. Or it will create the condition where the next election cycle, they'll actually be able to be taken out. So what I see both with Democratic insurgents uh, like Cori Bush and third party folk like Frank Amuler Paz, I see the potential to really move the Democratic Party to the left in major cities. And then using that to move the Democratic Party at uh, the state and the national level to the left. And that's what we need going forward. I've been speaking with Dr. Lester Spence, professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. We need to have you back on. This conversation was great and needs to continue, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, man. This has been dope. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but please do not go away, because when we come back, we'll hear from a journalist 
who has been covering elections across the country to talk about how voting went this year in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic and talk to a pollster about the role of political polling in elections. And then later we'll talk about the push to open up the vote to more people here in Maryland, including currently and formerly incarcerated people. All of that after this break. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. This month's show, we're looking at voting and elections. And after a contentious presidential race and in the midst of a unprecedented health crisis, we assess just what happened and we ask what can we learn for upcoming elections. And I'm thrilled to be joined by two people that I not only follow closely, but uh, I know there's nobody who pays closer attention to elections and political trends like Jessica Hoosman and Malia Cromer. Jessica is a lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land Project, where she covers voting rights and election administration. Malia is a director of the Sarah T. Hughes Field Politics Center and associate professor of political science at Goucher College. Jessica, Malia, Welcome to Future City, and thank you so much for making time for such a busy season as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So Jessica, why don't I start with you? As lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land Project, which helps newsrooms across the country cover ballot access issues, how do you see states and how did you see states in jurisdictions all over the country respond to the unique challenges that COVID brought to this election season? You know, I think that election 2020 was, in fact, the best administered election of our lifetimes. I, and I think people don't really believe me when I say that because it was such a confusing time and the rules changed so frequently. But, you know, on election day, Election Land had more than 500 reporters spread out across the country and looking for problems and taking in hundreds of thousands of data points from across the country. And it was the most boring day of my life. Like nothing bad happened. And that is a outstanding achievement for election administrators across the country. I, I think that despite all of the curveballs that that these folks were thrown. The pandemic, a president who routinely disparaged them, a American public that is, is less and less likely to trust the results of elections, they still managed to pull off a, a really well done federal election. And that should be applauded. There's so much misinformation swirling around about the election and the propensity for fraud and all of this. But, you know, in my mind, all of these really basic issues um, that people are quibbling over, right, like the, the security of machines, the need for the votes to be counted immediately on November 3rd, and the disparity in political preference between mail-in voting and in-person voting and what that means for the results as they roll in or how long it will take the results to come. All of these things were foreshadowed. And so I can spend my time knocking down and debunking all of these theories over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, like the folks that want to believe that want to believe that because they trust the people who are saying it. And so I think that the best way to 
get these narratives to end is not to go after the narratives themselves, but to show how unreliable and disingenuous the sources of information are. Um, And I think until the media makes that switch, right, until they stop calling secretaries of state to ask if fraud is real and instead turn their sights on the person who's saying that it is, these these things are going to continue to spread. Good point. And so, you know, Malia, I know you look at it from from a different type of perspective, being the fact that you are a professional pollster. Generally speaking, what do you see as the role of political polling in the electoral process? And what type of turns do you think that 2020 had on the way it's both interpreted and the way that it's marketed? That's a really big question. I want to start off by saying that I think if one lesson from 2020 is, is that we need to start to refocus our attention as pollsters away from just this horse race polling, the who's up or who's down, into truly understanding what makes the American voter tick. Mm -hmm. Uh, We spend an enormous amount of resources on these battleground polls um, that just are asking, you know, just basic questions like the horse race and maybe some favorability ratings. But really, um, we should invest more money in trying to figure out, like, why is it that... um, Trump increased his vote share among Latinos and Hispanics. Um, what is it about those voters um, that made them break to, a little bit more towards the Republican Party than they had in previous years? Um, what is it about white working class voters? What is it about Black voters? What do they want? What do they What do they see um, in the policy positions of both the Democratic and Republican Party that they like and dislike? And just an overall increase investment in policy polling is what I would like to see. Well, so, so let's, but, but I actually, I, I think that, I, I think in many ways that actually is, uh, your take is a very important one, right? Because, you know, we can have a conversation about why pollsters in Texas got that wrong or why pollsters, uh, you know, why pollsters in X state or Y state, you know, got that wrong. But I think your, your point is actually a really important one about maybe it goes about the idea of, were we even asking the right questions and understanding how the psychology of voters, particularly in this climate, right? Particularly in this in this global pandemic climate, are there ways that we need to think about the ways we're, we're adjusting to the psychology of voters and how that's actually changing in this larger dynamic? And I want to be clear, there are some groups that are really doing this, like the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI for short. Pew Research Center, the Kaiser Family Foundation has done incredible work understanding what people um, think about healthcare and all the nuances of that, that really important central debate. So there are people who are doing the heavy lifting here. Um, it's just that all the focus, every single election cycle drills down to how closely we can predict that uh, pollsters predict the election. And I think just something to keep in mind is something around 148 million votes were cast in this last election cycle. Hmm. And although there were some precision problems, certainly among pollsters, and there were some even misses among pollsters, they were able at least to tell us um, by taking 800 to 1,200 snapshots at a time, these like uh, uh, 800 uh, completed interviews or 1,200 completed interviews to really show at least a picture, even if it was blurry around the edges, that Biden was going to win this election. And so the, we also need to get more comfortable, I think, um, and stop looking at polls as these precise measures of exactly what's going to happen and get more com- and understand the fact there's uncertainty baked in, there's a margin of error baked in. And I think we'd be better suited if we just focused more of our attention on understanding the underlying, the why voters think the way they do instead of the what voters think. 
And Jessica, what, what kind of effect did you think that mail-in voting, early voting, uh, all these other all these other mechanisms that again now are just very much commonplace? But you know, I think even leading up into twenty twenty, where voters were skeptical about these things before, what what type of impact did that have on everything from turnout to the psychology that the parties were using to go and and target their voters? I, I think that President Trump sort of shot himself in the foot by disparaging mail-in voting to the extent that he did. When President Trump speaks, there is only really one party of people who believe what he says, and that is not the Democratic Party. And so for as much as he disparaged mail-in voting, Democrats decided that it was the most efficient and safe way for them to cast their ballot, and they did so in droves. And so how many Republicans chose not to show up to the polls at all and not cast a mail-in ballot either? I don't know that we'll ever know. One of the reasons that people turned out in droves is is because they had so many more options for voting. Um, and, and, you know, I've heard from, this is anecdotal, of course, but I've heard from lots of young people who say, well, I cast my ballot because it was easy to do. I, I requested it and it came to me and I sent it back. Um, and, and I think that that is, that's a lesson for election administrators in the future. You know, we've given voters all of these options. They have chosen the one that's best for them. And, and I hope that these options don't go away, even when we're not in the middle of a, of a pandemic. It was interesting because you would, you would watch people who would say things like it wasn't just about get out the vote. Um, it was also about what's your plan to vote like that. You know, you, people wanted to hear we have options now. It's important that you have your plan, uh, whether it's mail in, whether it's early voting, whether it's going day of. Uh, but we also saw how even with that push, these elements of misinformation and particularly the uses of social media for misinformation uh, that really has become so present. And I would argue not even just this one, but also even even the past uh, presidential elections, particularly 2016. Uh, Are there ways to combat this level of misinformation on social media uh, without also infringing on people's freedom of speech? The best way in my mind to avoid these problems in the future is simply by giving the American public a better understanding of how elections are administered. This year was a really interesting year to watch people vote. This year, the American electorate engaged with the process of elections in a deeper way than they had in the past. And that's because all of the mechanisms were impacted by the virus and by changing standards for how we count ballots and emergency orders that affected election administration. And so I think that the American public is more attuned to the nuts and bolts of election administration than they ever have been before. And I think that we should use this opportunity and counties should use this opportunities to do more voter education on the process. Because I think that the more you know about the process and the more you know about the inherent security measures that already exist within the system in every state and the way that the machines function and the way that the ballots are counted, the less susceptible you become to misinformation about that process. And, and Malia, how do, you, how do you then approach that even when it comes to 
methods and, and measures of, of polling? Because I think some people have said, well, uh, you know, part of the challenge of polling is, is, you know, who's picking up landlines or who's picking up cell phones or what's the best way of communicating, uh, you know, with a population to try to derive the answers that we're trying to derive. How do you think about that when it comes to the evolution of, of, of polling and the, the future of how that looks when it comes to being able to give accurate snapshots as to where people are? Sure. I just want to echo something really quickly to address um, about this. About state, the state boards of elections really have an opportunity here, I think, in the next election cycle to be um, centers for voter education in their states that they could really um, spend the time to make sure that the people in, in their individual states are educated on the way that elections are administered. I think that I think that would be really important to increase the trust in institutions. Uh, right. And I say that because trust in institutions, it seems, could be one of the underlying reasons that some of the polls miss in 2020, um, that you're seeing a systematic um, underrepresentation of folks who don't trust in institutions, polling, political polling being one of them. And so um, when we finally, I, I want to keep in mind that everything is preliminary right now, that we haven't had, a, pollsters haven't had the opportunity to take a deep dive and to really look um, and do some uh, careful analysis of the data. But some of the preliminary um, suggestions are that, you know, perhaps the people who don't trust political polling, who don't trust the, that elections have been administered fairly, that they're not going to answer our polls. And yeah. those people, more likely than not, um, have been supporters of the president. And so that's why you're seeing um, at least an underrepresentation of Donald Trump in a lot of these a lot of these polls. But that being said, for every poll that missed, there was also battleground polls that got it right. And so we need to sort. It's now it comes the, the hard task of trying to figure out why polls were right here and then wrong in other places. And particularly, the, the larger question is why did we do such a bad job on the down ballot? A final question I have for you is now that we're looking at the future of elections where Donald Trump will not presumably will not be on the ballot. How much of this was about him versus how much of this was about something else that's happening that pollsters need to understand? Well, there is a lot of it about him, at least in terms of the down ballot. You do see, I, I don't think that we were able to pick up that nuance well enough that you, that certainly there are more voters that voted for the Republican candidate down ballot than they did for the president. And so I'm not sure. I think the larger question though is, is like, how do we increase people's trust in our institutions and state boards of elections are an institution? Um, and how do we increase trust in other institutions? And certainly uh, the polling industry, we're going to take a big hit in 2020. And I don't think we would have taken as big of a hit if people understood or were patient enough to wait for the results to actually come in in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. There were still misses in areas, but the picture today of what the electorate looks like or what the election results look like look different than they did on election night. We're not a patient people, I don't think, Americans. Well, I, I, think, that, uh, I think that impact and I think that rebuild, uh, you both are playing a really important role in that. And, and we're, all, we're all very grateful for it. Uh, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. And I've been speaking with Jessica Huseman and also Malia Cromer. Jessica is a lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land Project, where she covers voting rights and election administration. Malia is a director of the Sarah T. Hughes Field Politics Center and associate professor of political science at Goucher College. Jessica, Malia, thank you both, not just for joining us today, but truly thank you for adding a real sense of integrity and clarity 
into a process that our society needs deeply. So thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but please do not go away. When we come back, we will talk to Dana Vickershelly, who is the executive director of ACLU of Maryland, about efforts to expand voting rights here in Maryland. Hey, this is Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR. Today on the show, we're looking back at the election season that just passed and asking what can we learn from it for elections in the future. To close out today's show, I am thrilled to be joined by Dana Vickers Shelley, who's the executive director of the ACLU of Maryland. Dana, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk with you this morning, Wes. First, I just have to say, you know, I, I know for a fact that you haven't slept for the past three months. And so uh, on behalf of, uh, of all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you for all the hard work that you have been doing uh, leading up to this election. And, and, and it actually it prompts me to, uh, you know, to the first question that I want to ask is, you know, really in the lead up to the November election, there was a lot of concern about ballot access during a pandemic, the safety of in-person voting, the reliability of mail-in ballots. And, and you have been on the ground working so hard to make sure that this democratic right of representation was preserved and protected. How would you assess the overall process of this year's election nationally and also here in Maryland? Well, first, um, again, I want to thank you for the, the shout out and the kudos to um, the ACLU of Maryland. Our team has been working really starting back in the spring when Maryland had its primary and we wanted to make sure that, again, with the in the midst of the, the COVID pandemic, that as many people could vote as possible. So at that point, we advocated to the State Board of Elections here in Maryland to have mail-in voting. 97% of eligible voters for the primary voted by mail-in. And so we wanted to try to have that for the fall as well, because we know how many people could vote and access the ballot if we were able to do it by mail-in. Unfortunately, in Maryland, we were not able to do that exclusively for the general election, but we were able to make multiple provisions, um, again, and advocating for that with voting rights partners from across the state and others. And I think the public can see the the amazing difference across both Maryland and across the country that mail-in voting had, um, and people were able to safely and efficiently cast their ballots. And it increased the number of people who were able to participate in the election, which ultimately is the goal for people and organizations that are focused on expanding the vote and preserving democracy. And we saw significant kickups in 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 numbers in in people being registered to vote and people actually you know expressing their their democratic right. But it wasn't just a practical change, right? There had to be a psychological change for people as well because you know how people voted historically, we were now presenting new options for people to making sure that their 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 voice was heard. How much of it in the process wasn't just about, okay, are we are we adding new elements, but it was about how are we also at the same time changing the psychology of voters? In terms of changing the psychology of voters, I mean, as you say, people are so, many voters are so used to 
first of all, there's one day to vote, so I have to go line up, cast my ballot. We knew going into the elections this year, and I say the ACLU of Maryland, our ACLU colleagues across the country and other organizations that were focused on voting rights, that multiple options had to be available to people. So we learned a lot from states like Washington State where people have been voting by mail for years and states like Maryland, which now have early voting. So we found multiple ways and, and needing to communicate that to as many voters and citizens as possible, all of the different options. So one for people's safety, but also to make sure that people have as many potential options for casting their ballot as possible. And so in Maryland, where we had mail-in voting, we no longer used the term absentee ballots. They were mail-in ballots, or you could drop off your ballot. So there was a lot of communication, education that ACLU, Common Cause, League of Women Voters, uh, Casa for All, and other organizations did here in the state. Disenfranchisement also at times can be very targeted. Uh, you know, we saw black people across the country, but especially in the South, for example, have faced voter disenfranchisement to different degrees for generations. What did this past election say to you about the state of black voting rights specifically in the United States? It said to us and reminded us how diligent we need to be to make sure that everyone has access to the ballot and can cast their ballot. One of the areas that ACLU of Maryland uh, in particular has been working on is to restore the ballot and expand the vote to people who are formally incarcerated, which now they're able to do in Maryland to be able to vote. And also this year for the first time, organizations in the state that are led by Black women who were formerly incarcerated worked with the State Board of Elections, the Corrections Department, to bring ballots inside so that people who are pre-trial, who have not been convicted of a crime, who are though in jail because they can't afford to pay bail, so that they can also vote. We know that voter disenfranchisement, voter suppression have been going on for not just decades, but at least since Reconstruction, right? When Black people, formerly enslaved folks, were criminalized. So you're in jail, therefore you lose your right to vote. States like Maryland have continued this unfortunate practice that continues to this day across the country. This state in Maryland, there's over-incarceration of Black residents, only 29% of the residents of Maryland are Black, yet 69% are incarcerated, which means a diminishing of the voices, the power of Black individuals and the Black community across the state of Maryland. And we want to change that. And we, we've seen how these dynamics have not only been generational. I mean, we, we saw significant kickups in incarceration rates, I mean, literally starting as early as the 70s and the 80s. So we're talking about ge the generational impact. And to your point about how these things have been, you know, not even just in the state of Maryland, but you're talking about how nationally those trends exist. And, you know, you look at the fact that there are other states who have tried to do these type of initiatives. But even when you think about the state law that was passed in 2016 that allowed Marylanders convicted of felonies to register to vote as soon as they were released from prison, continually, even as laws are passed, there are barriers that are put up. 
restrictions. One case that we a continued case we saw in, in Florida was even for people who were then able to who were released and were still able to register that there were restrictions on the fines that they had to pay before they could before they could actually register. How do we think about this as a long term continuum of being able to push for and advocate for rights when we know that it's not simply uh, you know a, a, a law was passed and now everything is over or a, a, a bill is passed and now everything is fixed. How do you think about this in terms of looking at it from on, on the basis of a continuum? Absolutely. We know that, um, and, and I have appreciated a quote um, that I heard Stacey Abrams say earlier this year, voter suppression is a combination of malfeasance and incompetence. Unfortunately, we have jurisdictions where there's just incompetence, which also keeps people from accessing their ballot. And then there's malfeasance where people are, and Florida is a perfect example, where after millions of constituents in, in Florida voted to restore voting rights to, to formerly incarcerated individuals, that the state still decided to make sure that there was yet one more hurdle, one more barrier. It is not a it is not a coincidence that black people who are over incarcerated in this country overall continue to have every single voting opportunity denied to them, thwarted, um, or made more difficult by actors of the state who are trying to and working hard to diminish the power and the voice and the access to democracy for Black Americans. At the ACLU, we are actively monitoring all attempts, any and all attempts, to disenfranchise voters, and we will always intervene when and whenever necessary to make sure every vote is counted, every voter is counted, and every voter's voice is heard. And I love that you phrase it that every voice is heard because uh, one one final question I have for you is actually about something that you all are doing called free the vote and the impact that we're hoping that free the vote is going to have on this larger issue of voting rights. Can you talk about what free the vote is and how you see that playing into all these issues that we're talking about before about establishing uh, and, and protecting the voting rights for currently and formerly incarcerated people? With Free the Vote, we want to be sure that despite the vestiges of Jim Crow, despite the incursions of lawsuits, um, decisions by the Supreme Court like Shelby v. Holder, that we can rid the state of any practices, any thinking that has people considering, well, this is, this is, this is the way it should be done. With our Free the Vote campaign and effort, we first are going to be educating citizens about why there's even a restriction, why there are even barriers to voting in many states, the majority of states, for people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. We know that a couple of states in New England, um, I believe it is uh, Maine and Vermont or New Hampshire and Vermont, predominantly white states allow people who are currently in jail, in prison, to vote. And when they come out, they can still vote. They never lose their right. So we know that this is part of the, again, the vestiges of Jim Crow that have people thinking, oh, well, isn't that the way that it's supposed to be? 
It is not supposed to be that way. It was designed that way. It was designed purposefully to eliminate the power of black citizens of this country and to lessen and and diminish their access, our access to, to the ballot and to democracy overall. We're learning so much from organizations in Maryland, such as Out for Justice, Life After Release, and the Maryland Justice Project, three organizations that are led by women who were formerly incarcerated, who were leading and guiding voting rights advocates like the ACLU, Casa for All, League of Women Voters, and Common Cause, and the NAACP, in how to be more effective, how to make sure that people are free to vote. I've been speaking with Dana Vickers Shelley, the executive director of the ACLU in Maryland. And I think even just from this conversation, we see just not why your work is so important now, but why it's always been so important. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So before we go, as always, I'd like to leave you with a few thoughts. When you look at the framework of a true democracy, It's important to recognize that there are many facets that work in concert to understand and protect a democracy's health. Tenets like the freedoms of press and freedoms of speech, as highlighted in our Bill of Rights. Freedoms like having an ability to express your concern and hopes openly to those who are sworn to uphold and protect those freedoms. And importantly, the ability to have a voice and a vote about who those elected officials are that will have the extraordinary authority over your life and over your ambitions. While democracy and its preservation is not simply about one day, that day, election day, does hold a significant space in our defense and appreciation of that core tenet that makes democracy special. One way to do this would be to make election day easier for people to access, and that would be to make election day a national holiday that people should have a day off to help make a decision that will impact the next two and four and six years of their lives would be important. And we can do that by actually offering it to be merged with another day that is dedicated to honoring those that have served our nation proudly and heroically, our veterans. Those days are actually only traditionally separated by a few days. And It can not only significantly increase probability for eligible voters to be able to participate in our democratic franchise, but also allow our veterans community, which I'm a very proud member of, to make one final gift, one final contribution to our nation's growth. There are groups like the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America that are currently working on this, and I hope to share more about this with all of you in episodes to come. Anybody who attempts to suppress participation is not defending democracy. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Anybody who is advocating for more eligible voters to have opportunities to participate in this system is not trying to cheat or fabricate. In fact, they're trying to protect the greatest of the pillars of our democratic union. And our future city needs to be one where those who sit in seats of authority and power are true embodiments of the societies that we hope to live in and exist in. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us here with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. 
Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Program and Features tabs. Thanks to James Burroughs and Mark Gunnery for providing original music for this episode. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So, until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.